strong copper cast his legitimate insults against silver, and was full of hate against him. Insults of a miserable dog, like water from a brackish well. He exerted his powers against him to harass him. And at this, Silver felt thoroughly harassed. It did not befit his dignity. You're listening to Jumping Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age in the Middle East. I'm your host, Alex. This is my guest. I'm Sheila. I'm a graduate student in chemistry. And I should also point out that Sheila is the fairy godparent of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Having put in uh, large amounts of work well prior to the recording of the first episode. I'm sorry for wasting all that time. (laughs) Not time wasted if it turns into something cool and good. I think it it probably won't. (laughs) So we're listening to The Debate Between Copper and Silver. This is a Sumerian debate poem written down around 2000 BCE. We're using the Electronic Text Corpus of Sumerian Literature translation. So unfortunately, the tablet is extremely damaged and broken into pieces. So the order in which these fragments appear is unclear. So I've arranged them arbitrarily. They come down to us as chunks, and I have put them in an order, which seems to make sense. Okay. Copper points out that it's used in hoes and shovels, and those tools being used in irrigation and agriculture make copper useful to humans. And in the genre of Sumerian debate text, you win the debate by being the most useful or productive to humans. When the heavens were separated from the earth, there was no drinking water. In order that the people should eat food, my father Enlil created me in a single day. Then the Tigris charged like a great wild bull. At that time, your feet did not move and you did not walk around. They cut you to pieces with the strength provided by me and the abundance I give to the population. So there were no coins at any point in the Bronze Age. Transactions in which silver actually changed hands were uncommon. So silver was a medium in which value was kept track of, but by and large, the silver was kept in usually temple vaults or under the control of a major institution, and you know, everything was done in tabs and debts and so on. So they had the silver standard. Yes. We're not quite there in the Uruk period, but we will be soon enough. Anyway, silver responds. When you keep hitting the soil like someone falling from a roof, when they carry you out from the big brambles and thorns like a dog, as if they were catching a thief at midnight, when the great turbulent waters regularly, yearly, filled the desert... When they carry the grain from the dry ground to the canal banks, when they carry the sesame from the furrows to the canal banks, when they carry the red onions, white onions, edible, bulbous leeks and turnips flourishing in the furrows, when they transport the salt and spice seeds lying at the edges of the fields, when they feed the various grains to cattle and sheep, when they bring fodder to the pigs born at the fatteners, when they feed dough to the porcupine's litter, when they crush coarse flour for the huge wild boars, straight-tailed fish, eel fish, carp, fish with bellies, Giraba fish laying their eggs in large amounts in the shallows, gurgal birds, suda birds, large oo birds from the middle of the sea, eggs of ducks and all kinds of birds, all the good things which thrive in the desert at peace day. Which is a really complete sentence, but that's uh, that's the text as it appears. Sounds like silver is like praising copper. Or something like that, I'm not sure. <laughs> Hard to tell sometimes because we don't have the beginning and end of the sentence. And copper replies to a section that we've now lost. It seems that silver had brought up the palace treasuries of silver that I mentioned. Silver, consider the palace. Outdoors, you stick out a long tongue like a buck goat so that everybody can see. Indoors, the palace is your station and banquets are your assigned task, you say. Silver, I will demonstrate to you that the palace is neither your station nor your dwelling. Men call tiny, very strong boxes for you, as they do a boat. They cover you over their oldest rags, and someone digs a hole for you in the middle of the cattle pen. Or they pour clay on top of you, as on a jar with a sealed mouth. And then, in the darkest place inside the house, someone buries you in the most obscure corner of a grave. When the time of wet ground has arrived for me, 
You do not supply the copper hose that chop plants in the hard ground, so no one concerns themselves with you. Sir Copper repeats this formula three more times, pointing out that copper is used for plows, for sewing. In the winter, copper is used for axes to chop firewood. And during the harvest season, copper is used for sickles to collect grain. So Silver replies, You have accumulated lies about my honorable station. Let me, the mouse, do his work. His assigned task in the ground is noble. Your teeth dig the ground. Your tongue moves the dirt. The copper hoe has its digging taken over by the wooden hoe in the harder ground. The copper sickles need to have the hard weeds burned. The copper axes which chop trees, stripping and pulling out tamarisks and ash shrubs, have their blades dulled. The copper saws have to lie down for a rest beside the mountain trees. So we'll hear copper's rebuttal in a bit, but first, we're going to talk about the development of metallurgy in the 4th millennia BCE. So we'll be mostly talking about copper. After all, this is the late Chalcolithic. So this is Greek for the Copper Stone Age. In other words, the period of time when people started supplementing their traditional stone tools with tools made out of copper, which they were figuring out how to refine and smelt and so on in mm -hmm. the late 5th and 4th millennia BC. I feel like we're going to talk about some chalcogens. Yes. A... At the end of the 4th millennium, we will see that people are combining copper with arsenic to make bronze, maybe enhancing natural Hardness? copper deposits that have arsenic in them. Yeah, so we're going to talk about mining. We're going to talk about the development of smelting, which is the process of turning copper ores into pure copper, the process of casting them into ingots. Then we're going to talk about individual metals, starting with copper, then talking about silver, which was the first precious metal in history, as we've talked mm -hmm. about. We're also going to talk about gold, lead, and iron. After that, we're going to talk about arsenical bronze, which was the earliest form of bronze alloyed intentionally and the most common form until about 2000 BCE, so throughout the entire early Bronze Age. Then we're going to talk about the health effects of working with metal and uh, smelting and alloying and so on. Which... I'm sure there are many. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you may have heard of arsenic already. <laughs> and last, we're going to end up with the end of the debate between silver and copper. Minerals have been among the most important resources for all of human history. They are pretty and useful. You can use minerals for tools and weapons, mm -hmm. um, and also they're pretty and shiny yeah. Yeah. and glittery and come in lots of different colors. True. Yeah, for use in art and jewelry. Yeah, you can grind it into a paste and make it into a paint. Malachite, especially, is a green paint. That's a copper, isn't it? That is a, yeah. It is one of the calcogens we'll talk about. So it's a copper oxide, and the oxygen is a calcogen. Oh, uh, I see. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, the calcogen group is oxygen, sulfur, and selenium. So things that are bind with. Polonium. Yep, there we go. Yeah, so copper smelting allows the large-scale production of metal tools. People will use similar practices when they later make bronze tools. And over the course of the Bronze Age... Working with metal will allow smiths to make new tools, like new weapons, like swords, which you can't make out of stone for sure. And if you try to make a sword out of copper, it'll be way too heavy and not strong enough. Very floppy. Yeah. And also, the harder metal you're able to make, the more efficient agricultural tools, like plows, you're able to make, mm -hmm. which again came up in the debate, which leads to more intensive agriculture. So the traditional narrative that you'll probably hear in a history textbook is that in the mountains, there are veins of native copper. And once people started melting those pickaxes them out of the mountain and then melting them to melt down the, the pure copper, that led to the discovery that, you know, when you melt metal, they separate out into different layers and you can then separate. So um, native copper is just referring to like ore? Right. So native copper is when copper appears in a mostly pure form in... Oh, okay. So elemental copper. Yes. Almost. Or... Well, well, almost. I mean... As it's, elemental it's as you can get it out of the ground. Right, right. Okay, so allegedly they mine the native copper, mm -hmm. they right. melt it down. Yeah, so then, you know, in this traditional narrative, the next stage of this would have been smelting ores. It's a more complicated chemical process than just making it hot enough to melt the metal. Because smelting is, you know, also removing the impurities via chemical processes. Right. So the big problem with this traditional narrative is that there's no actual evidence for melting and casting before we have evidence for people smelting. Melted and cast copper, so in other words, if you heat it to the melting point of the metal copper, 
it's going to end up chemically different than native copper, as it appears in nature. Right. All of the copper that we've received from these early periods is native and not melted. So... Yeah, so it's hammered native copper. So they get it out of the ground. They okay, might so heat it up a no little smelting. bit. Well, in the earliest stages. So right. when they're first figuring out what makes copper special and how to work it, because this is the first metal that people worked with you know, on a large-scale way. So not that there's this linear transition between mining native copper, melting... Right. And then moving to smelting. Yeah. I mean, we'll talk about this more in a bit, but basically the biggest problem with this traditional narrative is the assumption that it's not difficult to get to the melting point of copper, which is, I think, it's, it's, it's really hard. It's like a thousand degrees, isn't it? I've written down somewhere. 1,083 degrees Celsius, right. which is much hotter than we have any evidence for Neolithic ovens being able to reach. Yeah. Okay, so before smelting, yeah. there was just hammering. Right. Yeah, before smelting, they're cold hammering it, or heating up a little so it's a little easier to hammer into shape, but they're mm -hmm. not heating it to over 1,000 degrees Celsius. So to look at the timeline of all this, around 8,000 BCE, we see our first use of native copper, which again is pure metal that's taken straight out of the ground. This is at Chaigernu in southeastern Anatolia, not far from Gurbekli Tepe. In the late 7,000s, we see native copper in the North Levant, so Syria, and southwestern Iran. These are both along Anatolian trade routes, which we have been talking a lot about. And these trade routes might have carried obsidian as well as copper. Okay. So not only copper the mineral, but also techniques of copper smelting and copper casting and all that. Where's, a, where's obsidian coming from? The volcanic areas in southeastern Anatolia. So again, not far from Gubekli Tepe. Um, there's a lot of volcanic glass. All right. In the 6,000s, in the Anarak mines in central Iran, we have native copper that's cold hammered. Later on, it's heat hammered and annealed. So annealing is heating and cooling a metal, sometimes over and over again, to remove the impurities and make it harder and less brittle. Oh, okay. Like crystallizing something. In the mid-5,000s BC, we see the first crucibles, first in the Balkans in southeastern Europe, then in southeastern Iran by 5200. Uh, we see it nowhere else in the Near East until the mid to late 4000s, afterwards we see it in Iran, Anatolia, and the Levant. It being crucibles. It being crucibles, yes. All right. Native hammering continued. So we have a copper base head from the 5000s at John Hassan in southeastern Anatolia. And this was still hammered, not cast. So even as they're developing new techniques, they're continuing to hammer the native copper they take out of the ground. So academics, mostly looking at the Near East as the kind of like template for all other world cultures, mm. you know, used to think that you know, copper smelting was inextricably linked to the rise of the state. Because in the you know, 4,000s and the 3,000s in the Middle East, that is what we see. The state rising in conjunction with this idea of like a linear right. copper smelting narrative. Right. Yeah, the <laughs> idea being that you need a power structure that is able to connect large population centers, that, you know, agricultural centers, with you know, these far-flung sites of the mountains where they're actually mining the copper. Mm -hmm. And you know you need a complex enough structure of you know labor and you know, economic systems in order to have full time specialists in copper stuff. Okay. Yeah. So and you know the thinking uh, it also includes the idea that copper tools lead to better agriculture and more intensive, more efficient agriculture, which you know produces a higher grant surplus, which can be appropriated by elites and so on. So this is not true. <gasps> so it turns out that there were other unrelated inventions of smelting at different times in different places in the world. In Spain, copper smelting was used for decoration for a thousand years before they used it for tools or anything economically productive. Oh. In Thailand, they made copper tools, but this resulted in no change in social organization. And in South America, they had both copper and gold metalworking, but no state and no money. Neat. Yeah. Take us back. Yeah, you know, they've been Candida. They go to El Dorado, and they have endless gold and jewels, but it's worthless stuff. Uh, was, I mean, that was literally uh, South America. It's like, you know, they have uh, gold, and they make cool art out of it. Oh, well, yeah. It's pretty and useful. Doesn't need to have a state attached. True. So... You know, in Thailand, there's metal tools and such, but no concurrent change in social organization. Right. Like, not the same sort of state formation that we're seeing in, um, yeah, the yeah. period we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, the Middle East, yeah. 
Yeah, so for most of the Ubaid period, so again, about 6,000 to 4,000 BCE, metal is extremely rare outside of the highlands where it's being mined. So Iran, Anatolia, uh, Canaan, Sasha Palestine are all areas that have a long history of copper production because they have a long history of copper mining in the mountains there. We have terracotta models of socketed axes, which may be indications that they were making real metal axes with that design. You know, you make ceramic replicas for artistic ritual purposes, and then when you're done with the metal, you recast it to something else. Yeah. And also, yeah. like, it didn't have instructables back then. Right. Here's a, a ceramic thing that shows you how to make an axe out of the real thing. True. Yeah. We don't have a huge amount of copper artifacts, but that is probably because it's a valuable, you know, labor-intensive material, and it's much better to melt it down and recast it than wait for the new shipment. Um, Makes sense. Yeah. So the increase in copper is part of an increase in growing prestige trade. So, like we said, the same uh, trade routes to bring obsidian and copper are also now bringing lapis lazuli, turquoise, and carnelian all semi-precious stones. This comes along with the growth in institutional hierarchy we see in the late 4000s BCE. It should be pointed out that a later Sumerian legendary tradition, in other words, the king list, credited pre-flood cities with discovering metallurgy. One of the pre-flood cities was Bad Tibira, and that name is Sumerian for Fortress of the Metalsmiths. Mm. So in, in the Sumerian literature tradition, uh, you know, metal comes in the first five dynasties of human history. Ooh. Mm. Oh, that makes sense. Okay, when you say prestige trade, mm-hmm. that means the sort of like rise of like higher classes, mm-hmm. basically? Yes. So one thread that we've been following is the, like one way for elites to amass power and prestige and wealth and connections and so on is to be a major node through which high value trade passes. So that can be labor intensive extractive materials like obsidian and copper that can be manufactured goods like textiles. I mean, we have a fair amount of evidence, and there's probably a lot of evidence that's now lost. But in South Mesopotamia, where they have these big cities and infinite agriculture, but not, you know, no timber, no metals, no stone, no anything like that. Probably what they're exporting is textiles, you know, fine fabrics and stuff made from wool, you know, none of which will show up in the archaeological record. You know, the more power that chiefs are able to amass by directing the flow of trade, the more labor they're able to control within their communities, which means they're able to produce higher quality goods and, and so on. Boy, here we go. <laughs> yep. That's how we see the rise of elites, you know, at these, you know, mining sites in Iran, when they're not part of the South Mesopotamian cultural area per se, but they are part of the same economy and they're getting wealthy on the other side of that trade. So speaking of mining, the earliest stage would have been pit mines, where you dig a big hole in the ground and you take out the ore. The next phase would have been tunneling, which is much more labor intensive because you can't only dig straight down, you have to dig tunnels. So you have to reinforce the tunnels to prevent collapses. In more modern history, we've needed kids to crawl through the small tunnels, which is obviously more dangerous. Uh, Around 1000 BCE in Konaya, Turkey, this is after the Bronze Age. We have 50 minor skeletons in a tunnel collapse. And that kind of thing was probably not unheard of in larger mines. Probably so, not unheard of today. That is, I mean, that is also true. Uh, you know, like I said, the Anorak mines in Iran, central Iran. We have other mines in Anatolia. Yeah, you know, these are permanent settlements, probably that predated the long-distance prestige trade. So they're not, you know, for example, South Mesopotamian colonists that are setting up outposts. They probably have indirect contact with the big cities, mediated through a couple different layers of middlemen. And sometimes the metal was processed in these settlements because it's more weight efficient to ship out finished copper than it is to ship out all the slag and rock and everything that comes in. Right. It's not slag, but gang. So these, like, mining towns would also have to have concurrent furnaces and mm-hmm. smelting yeah. stuff. I mean, yes, especially because intensive trade is also an incentive for them to produce as much copper as possible. Right. And to do as many of the stages of the production process in their town as possible. Makes sense. So in addition to native copper, sometimes it comes out of the ground covered in gang 
which is the technical term for other useless minerals that have to be removed. It's like oxides, carbonates, other materials. Tasty, tasty ground stuff. (laughs) So the oldest form of smelting is in a crucible. This is in a stone or a ceramic container. You put the metal inside and you put it in fire. This develops naturally and it's often used domestically. You can make one that's small enough to put in a fireplace. Yeah. Uh, Or a pottery kiln or whatever. You don't have to build an entirely different facility for it. Yeah, you know, the crucibles you have in chemistry classes are just uh, barely the size of your hand. True. And when people are using these small crucibles on a domestic scale, it doesn't affect social complexity. Or it doesn't necessarily have to, you know, because... Yeah, it's like a pot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're producing a household amount of copper for a knife or whatever. So in order to smelt, you fill up your crucible with copper ore, so this can be oxides or sulfides, and charcoal, and you heat it at 800 degrees Celsius. So again, this is under the melting point of copper but hot enough to cause this chemical reaction that we're going to talk about. So, Sorry, I'm thinking about mm-hmm. making a copper knife at home. Just, you know, pulling out my home crucible, <laughs> yep. sticking my lump of copper in it, casting it into a little knife. Hmm. The knife sucks a lot, probably. Well, might be better than stone. This is true. Flint. You know, I didn't I didn't think of that. <laughs> Got the privilege of steel. The <laughs> privilege of steel called the five-finger discount? <laughs> <laughs> the smelting process involves dehydrating the ore. In other words, removing the water molecules from the mineral structure of the ore. Frequently, ionic compounds that involve like metals and non-metals uh, will sometimes have structures that themselves incorporate water molecules. A really famous sort of classroom chemistry example is copper sulfate pentahydrate, which is this brilliant blue color. That just means within the structure of copper sulfate, there's five water molecules for every unit of copper sulfate. And then if you heat it up reasonably high, you see the blue color disappear. That's the hydrates, or literally the water molecules leaving, and you just get CuSO4, and it's a white powder. Nice. So changing the chemical structure by removing water from literally the crystallite. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so copper sulfides and copper oxides appear in different geological regions. Sulfides are more common farther underground, and they often include iron. So different regions will smelt either or both types, depending on what's available to them. And one of the things I mentioned as part of the smelting reaction is charcoal. Yeah, charcoal. I do love a grill. Charcoal is just a carbon residue. You get it from burning up wood. And you put it in the crucible, I'm assuming, yeah. with along with the metal. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when that heats up, it's adding additional heat to the metal that is not coming specifically from the crucible. And then it also, a combustion product would be like carbon monoxide, something that would be able to provide electrons to the copper. And uh, in doing so, reducing it, kicking off whatever is stuck to it, like a sulfide or an oxide, and it would be easier to extract pure copper. Yeah, so the smoke produced from the charcoal produces carbon monoxide that helps the chemical reaction. Basically, yeah. Nice. Yeah, so you have these different minerals that are bonding to the water and the iron and so on. And once you get that, you get all the other impurities out. You're left with the pure refined copper sulfide that you started with. Mm-hmm. It's the most pure form of the... Or of the actual copper-containing right. stuff. In the, yeah, the compound that you're trying to work with. Yeah. So now this pure refined copper sulfide reacts with the oxygen in the air. Um, yeah. So the oxygen binds with the sulfur. Yes. Produce sulfur oxides. Yes, yes, yes. And that takes the sulfur out of the copper, mm-hmm. leaving it with pure copper. Yep. So nice. oxygen grabs electrons from sulfur, leaves some electrons on copper, and takes it from being you know, chemically bonded to the sulfur into just hanging out by itself. Nice. The other thing is a crucible is small. So because the volume is small relative to the surface area, this can lead to rapid heat loss. The heat created by the chemical reaction of the copper mineral itself is too small to offset the heat loss from the crucible radiating heat. Right. So putting charcoal inside the crucible and having it burn adds extra heat inside the crucible to offset the heat loss. 
Okay. So you're able to get up to that thousand degree Well, above melting. 800. Yeah. Right. You see furnace melting, which is the same principle as crucible smelting, just on a bigger scale. It shows up in Abu Matar in Palestine. They're smelting a big ore in a big furnace. Sorry, they're smelting ore in no, a big furnace. No, they're smelting big ore. Big ore. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're going to purify the copper further in a smaller piece of it. So we have no evidence of using fluxes until the Middle Bronze Age, so after 2000 BC. These are other metals and materials added that are better at oxidizing the copper. So again, other ways to speed up that reaction and have other stuff for the sulfur and oxide to bind to it. Okay. Also present inside the ore as impurities are iron oxides, uh, silica and silicates, and copper carbonates. So these also are going to react inside the crucible. So this is some metals that you can use as fluxes include iron, manganese, arsenic, and antimony. Mm-hmm. A flux being a something that is just a different... Uh... Different metal added inside, or different material added inside. Okay. To so this... aid the smelting reaction. Okay. We're not talking about, like, alloys or anything. No. Okay. So this is just something that is reacting with whatever copper is bonded to in order to retrieve pure copper. Yeah, so sometimes oxide or carbonide ore deposits near sulfides can be a source of arsenic. Mm-hmm. So as we mentioned, and we'll talk more about, a copper arsenic alloy is the main type of bronze during the early Bronze Age, and sometimes the arsenic comes mixed in with the copper. Right. So once you've smelted copper and you want to cast it in a particular mold, that's when you need to melt it to the melting point of copper, which is 1,083 degrees Celsius. After that, you pour it into molds. So one of the most common shapes that we're going to see molded is the ingot, which is a standardized size of copper that is used in interregional trade. What uh, what are the molds made of? Like stone? You could use a couple different things. Um, stone. You can use sand. Like if you have a <laughs> yeah, that's what everyone makes molds out of. Yeah, exactly. Like um, you, yeah, if you have like a you know, ceramic replica of the size and shape of it, then you press it into wet sand or you know, moldable sand. All right. They are fungible units of copper because ideally the ingots are all. <laughs> I don't want to say it. <laughs> they are fungible tokens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They are fungible tokens. Oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah, ideally, they're all purified to you know an acceptably high degree of purity. Mm-hmm. They are all the same size and shape, which means they're all literally interchangeable. Okay. And because you can, maybe order is the wrong word, but you know, order a certain number ahead of time from a certain person. That means you can plan production and you know allocate a certain amount of ingots to each smith to make a certain amount of you know, tools or ahead of time and you don't have to find out how much you have when it arrives and you go from there so what are what are people doing with ingots i mean you transport them that's the medium in which they're transported over long distance so you load them on a donkey i see i see and then they get where they need to go mm-hmm. people use the ingots to make stuff mm-hmm. all right yeah yeah so, so for example the very famous Ed nasir i was gonna say yeah. isn't there a guy yeah. who who did some some shady business with some copper yeah. we, we will cover him on this podcast he's about <laughs> a, yeah, more than a thousand years in the future at this point but basically what he was doing is selling standard ingots of impure copper. The original scammer. <laughs> yep. So like we've been saying, there's no metal in the wetlands. It has to be imported. So copper and silver come from southeast Anatolia and central Iran. Gold can come from Egypt and Iran. Uh, Egypt sometimes gets it from like the Horn of Africa area. Mm-hmm. So in Ubaid, Unu, we have only one metal object. That was a copper hull. Where is Unu? Unu is Uruk. Unu is the Sumerian name. Uruk is the Akkadian name. Oh, okay, okay. And because we're currently in the Uruk period, all right, all right. the city of Uruk. Very nice. So during the Ubaid period, we see tombs at Susa and Tepegawa. Jennifer Ross, in a 2010 article, described, quote, vigorous metallurgical production, but only in copper, none of the other materials. Used. Evidenced by what? Large furnaces. We have large amounts of slag. Um, yeah, yummy. The best place to leave slag is right next to where it's created. <laughs> Just like today? Yeah, you don't <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so by the late 3000s BCE, though, so the late Uruk period, we see different types of metal, silver, gold, and lead. At this point, it's probably already arriving in the south, pre-smelted, 
It's either cast into ingots or hammered into sheets. There is some slag in these major cities at, at Udu, for example, but not enough evidence of local smelting to account for the amount of copper they would have needed in the city. Okay. So they're probably importing a lot of pre-warped copper. Okay. Um, is it still probably happening in like mining areas? Uh, probably, yeah. Or maybe secondary sites. I mean, there might be a small mining village that goes to a local town that does more smelting and so on. It's the OG supply chain. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah, and once they arrive in the city, the metals will be hammered, cut, annealed, and shaped. These are all techniques used since the Neolithic. They're also casting copper and silver. Casting is a new process at this time. It was practiced earlier in Anatolia and Iran. The decoration is generally simple, chaste or grace details. Sometimes these metals, precious metals, are juxtaposed with stones or other metals. So we'll see a gold cap on a copper nail, and we'll see you know gold and you know, lapis lazuli used interchangeably as decoration in so Uruk period smiths were used to copper, so they treated all new metals, like gold and silver, as if it were copper. So they're also imported as pure smelted ingots. To join different sheets of sheet metal, you overlap and fold the edges, and you nail a metal sheet to a wood or stone backing. So the wood often uh, decays, so you will usually have only the metal implements left. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, metal is just, metal is so freaking awesome. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And like we have Ryuhengebauden, which is a vault in Uruk that is... Basically full of like evidence of burning and metal fittings for furniture. So probably a place where they ritually disposed of old furniture for the temple. And the wood is gone, obviously, but the metal is there. A bunch of cool stuff that used to go on chairs. Neat. Yeah. So you take the metal sheets, you like fold them, or you put them kind of with the edges overlapping. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And that's like a pretty, pretty clean scene. True. So yeah, now we have new uses for metalworking. So as society gets larger and more complex, along with traditional uses of so tools and weapons, Metal is now used for new forms of communication and personal distinction. So jewelry, architectural ornaments, and so on. You mentioned earlier that uh, copper said silver's tongue is sticking out of the temple. So yeah. it's probably some kind of silver decoration or silver-plated decoration. It was an yeah. architectural feature of the temple, or the palace, I should say. So looking at copper, the metal, the late Ubaid and Uruk periods are in the north and in Iran known as the Capulithic. Because South Mesopotamia didn't have any native stone or minerals, metals, it had to make a lot of its tools out of baked clay. So sickles and, and grinders and so on. The thing that everyone else would use stone for, they made it out of clay. Oh, wow. Yeah. That sounds not so good. One of the people talking about the Uruk expansion said, you know, the evidence of baked clay sickles in a place, you know, in one of these colonial outposts, you know, the, the local people had been using stone for thousands of years. If we have evidence of baked clay sickles, that's pretty clear evidence that there are Southerners doing their own personal culture because mm. there's no good reason to do this otherwise. That's really funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So during the Ubaid, copper was not really that necessary. Because of this, it was not obviously valued or prestigious. We don't have that much evidence for social stratification in Ubaid society in general. But you know, in, in the small amount of wealth disparity that we do see, copper doesn't really figure into it. Mm-hmm. It's just better types of pottery. So it's more useful. Right. Or less decorative. Less, Yeah, more useful, less decorative, and much more seen as utilitarian rather than as precious. If an important person has a tool made of copper, when they die, someone else gets the tool. They don't bury the guy with it. Okay, that's a sign of something that has more utility than its right. need to be a part of these rituals, I guess. Yeah. I'm sure there were, like, shiny stones as well. To yes. Demarc- uh, demarcate status of the class. Yeah, and if you remember during the Susa episode, Said on Uvaid Susa, the Susa one period. There Susa they, season one. Yes. <laughs> there they did have copper that was probably used in religious ritual. So all copper that we see in Ubaid South Mesopotamia is pure. So they're only importing pure processed copper from elsewhere. Meanwhile, at the same time, in northeastern Anatolia, in the South Caucasus, so the far northern edge of our region, 
we see natural copper arsenic alloys. So okay. this might be where they got the idea. Because even if it appears in nature and it's not perfect. Right, there's still like other stuff. Yeah, it's on still it. harder. Yeah. You know, it's still a, a superior metal. Oh, you're saying that like even though it's not like a human casted right. or smelted copper arsenic alloy, it's still obvious when mining it that a copper arsenic together is much harder. I assume so. Regular copper. Yeah, that makes sense. So in the late 4000s BC, in Iran, Anatolia, and Palestine, so basically everywhere except for the alluvium. We see intentional alloys of copper and arsenic, which we would call... Well, we're not the Bronte, but hmm. we're getting there. Not yet. Yeah. Um, in the early 3000s BC, at Nahal Mishmar, Palestine, we have a famous hoard of 413 metal objects. This includes 240 copper maceheads, 11 scepters, 10 crowns, and so on. These are all made of a copper arsenic alloy. Oh, we just left them lying around? Generally, with these hoards, it's they intend to come back to them later. They're oh. putting a bunch of stuff in a safe place from invaders or something, or they're, you know... It's a drought. They got to go elsewhere to herd, but they're going to leave all their heavy stuff back for when they come back. Okay. And then they come back. Storage. Yeah. So during the Middle Uruk period, around 3500 BCE, most copper was still pure, but also they're beginning to alloy copper with new metals, including arsenic, iron, silver, and lead. This is also when furnace melting appears suddenly at Susa, and the sudden appearance suggests that it was introduced from elsewhere and not developed in Susa. Oh, so someone brought their knowledge of building a furnace. Maybe. It's like, you know what this place needs? A furnace. The interesting thing is not long before this, Susa was basically settler colonized by South Mesopotamia. Like the material culture is replaced overnight in not only the big cities, but also the small villages. So it would be interesting if after the material culture was suddenly totally replaced with the the middle of culture, that they also got this implantation of a new type of metallurgy from probably elsewhere in Iran. In the other direction. Mm. So by 3300 BCE, this copper and arsenic alloy was widespread. It was physically harder than copper and easier to cast. So we can comfortably say we're in the Bronze Age, around 3300 BCE. One of the things that will distinguish the early from the Middle Bronze Age is the replacement of arsenic bronze with tin bronze. You can imagine that fewer people die of arsenic poisoning when they're using tin. Probably better for everyone. Yeah, but the problem at this point is that tin is too scarce. How does it become unscarce? Probably through trade. Yeah, but yeah, opening up new places to trade and you know discovering new deposits and so on. So now that you know people are making alloys, this gives smiths more control over the features of the metal they work with. So bronze, depending on what metals you put in there, you can change the color from red to gold or anywhere in between. You can change the hardness. At Unug, we see lumps of copper in the same place as smith workshops. More evidence of them doing metallurgy inside the city, doing chemical analysis of the copper. You can see sources in central Iran, north Mesopotamia, southeastern Anatolia, Oman, on the Arabian Peninsula. And at all of these places, south Mesopotamian pottery is common. Okay. Well, I guess, yeah, you know, all the copper from these different places has Mm -hmm. their own specific composition and Mm -hmm. the type of ore and what's coming out of the slag and all that stuff. Okay. So we also see new metal objects. We talked about tools and weapons and jewelry. We see figurines and architectural ornaments. They were playing Warhammer back then? Yes. Nice. Okay, so new stuff. stuff. Furniture fittings, Mm -hmm. vessel stands. So moving on to silver, which is going to be the main precious metal that we work with in this podcast. In the early 3000s, silver shows up at Tepe Siok. This is a major center in central Iran and kind of the northeastern edge of the Uruk world. It also shows up in Byblos on the Levantine coast and the Beja Satan in western Anatolia. So over time, silver and lead both become more common. Silver was produced from argentiferous lead ores. In other words, lead with silver. It was possibly also present in sulfides and chlorides. Serargurite is a natural silver chloride. And metallic silver does appear in nature. So it does appear in its mostly elemental form. Just, just like native copper. Yeah. 
So there's a two-part process to separate silver from the lead ore that it comes in. This process can use either sericite, which is a lead carbonate, or galena, which is a lead sulfide. And either way, you smelt these under reducing conditions. Probably alongside with charcoal, producing carbon monoxide. Mm, true. Heating it up really hot, providing electrons, mm. or with something else that is a reducing agent. Right. This process is called cupellation, where you separate the silver from the ore via selective oxidation. So cupelled silver has unique trace elements. It's at least a few thousands lead, much more than the native silver. But native silver has more antimony and more mercury. In the 3000s BCE, we see cupelled silver at Susa. We see a lid for a stone jar at Nakata in Egypt. The Nakata period is essentially the Uruk period of Egypt. We see pieces of silver in an infant jar burial at Hajanebi, Anatolia. And it's unclear how common silver was during the Uruk. You know, we don't have that many objects, but again, likely it was melted down and reused. Wait, so what What did people do transactions with if people weren't, like, handing each other pieces of silver? So, that's a good question. In the Uruk period, like, we only have the records from the temple. Pretty much, mm-hmm. during Uruk, we only have evidence from one temple. So we only have what was going in and what they were distributing to their workers and officials. So we don't know exactly what the transactions were looking like, because we only have the inflow and outflow of a single institution. Very unlikely that anyone had a concept of money in numerical terms. Oh, take us back. <laughs> oh my god. So they are dealing with lar- with quantities of barley and mm-hmm. grain and so on. And they do have a couple different counting systems for measuring amounts of barley. So probably, we're going to see the silver economy show up in the 2000s. At this point, at the very beginning, the kind of the cusp of the Capolithic Bronze Age transition, we're probably mainly dealing with transactions in, like the, the unit is expressed in amounts of grain. People are not always handing grain to each other in these transactions. Right. So probably they're keeping track of it. They're exchanging tokens. They have numerical tablets. Sometimes they have full-on tablets with pictographs and stuff. But usually it's, I pay you my tribute in the form of this amount of grain. You give me a token to show that I've paid my tribute. Then I take my token home, and if anyone asks me, then I can show them that I've already paid my tribute. Okay. And, you know, in the periphery, you know, where at these mining sites and so on, probably they're just exchanging goods. You know, we bring grain and textiles, and you give us X local commodity. Yeah, so we should not think of a monetary economy. And probably they're not even getting close to it with silver. Salivating. <laughs> so it sounds like cupellation, fancy word for you put some stuff in, it takes the impurities out. That's cupellation. Yeah, this doesn't sound that different from the rest of smelting. Yeah, it's just there's lots of silly names for the precious metals. That's fair. But yeah, I mean, it makes sense. It sounds like it's, you know, for you know, like precious metals or the coinage metals. Yeah, that makes sense. Seems to be a process that works exceptionally well for them because uh, those like noble metals, like mm-hmm. they have most of their electrons. That makes sense. They're uh, kind of at the end of their block of the periodic table. Mm-hmm. They're just, uh, they're chilling and they're doing their thing. That makes sense. But yeah, I wanted to, um, like the reason why metals are so like, I don't know, cool and special, mm-hmm. is that pure metals have are bonded together with like metallic bonds. Mm-hmm. So what that basically means is that instead of sort of thinking of maybe like a like a salt or an ionic structure where uh, you have these atoms uh, that are different and they're arranged, well, they are arranged in like a, a rigid or a crystalline structure, the electrons are not like bound to any particular metal mm-hmm. atom. Whereas in like ionic structures, the electrons are pretty rigidly with the more electronegative element. Right. So instead you sort of think of metallic bonds as like, you know, rigid structures of like nuclei in this, like, sea of electrons, almost. So is that what makes it so strong and hard? Is that... Exactly, If yeah. the entire thing is copper, 
and the entire thing is sharing the same pool of electrons freely. Well, not like strong and hard, but like, well, that's why it's like malleable. That's why it's, you know, stretchy. Um, that makes sense. That's why it's such a good electrical and like a heat conductor mm-hmm. because the electrons that are transmitting the heat and the electricity are just able to move around wherever. Right. Ooh, that makes sense. Yep. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just uh, the outer electrons mm-hmm. are just able to move around really wherever. You can imagine them as like hopping across these different nuclei. That makes sense. And then... Yeah, sounds like alloys are, well, so yeah, these metal atoms or these metal nuclei are still arranged in like different crystal lattices. Mm -hmm. So gold objects in archaeological settings generally tend to lose their physical form. Why's that? Because they're under tons of dirt. Is that just a euphemism for that gold gets stolen? No, I mean, the the physical form is they get crushed. Like gold is malleable enough to, you know, if it's carved in intricate form and then a building falls on it. It's going to be yeah. A, yeah, a, a puddle of gold. So we have nails, earrings, and beads, and figurines that survive. But we should also assume that lots of gold got inside. Central Iran would have been a major source of gold. You know, same place they're getting the copper from. A lot of mountains there. Possibly they would have gotten some from southern Egypt and or Nubia, part of Africa, Sudan area, and possibly mm-hmm. also from South Asia. So Tel Brak in northeastern Syria is a big, important city that we are giving short shrift to in this season. At some point in the future, we will do a series of episodes on Telbrock that includes its copy of history. Telbrock? Telbrock. So, yeah, it's its modern Arabic name. And then in the 3rd millennium BCE, it interacted with the Sumerians as the Kingdom of Nagar. Mm. So we will be back. All right. So it's on the trade route connecting South Mesopotamia to Southeastern Anatolia. If you know Telbrock for anything, you know it for the Eye Temple and the Eye Figurines. So the Eye Temple is built in the South Mesopotamian style. It's got over the podium in the Eye Temple. We have a frieze of gold, silver, and seven precious stones. Also in the temple, we have silver nails with gold ends and bands of gold, probably mm, fittings for furniture. Fancy. Yep. So, yeah, moving on to Tepe Gaura in northeastern Iraq, which we spent a fair amount of time on so far. The graves there produced a total of 25,000 beads. These included gold, electron, turquoise, lapis lazuli, carnelian, jadeite, diorite, defiance, ivory, and shells. What is electron? Electron is a naturally occurring alloy of gold and silver. Oh, okay. Here I thought they were making stuff up in Dungeons and Dragons. No, yeah, that one's real, even though it sounds extremely fake. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so the lapis lazuli is proof that they were trading, at least indirectly, with Afghanistan and the Badakhshan mines that produced pretty much the entire supply of lapis lazuli in the Middle East. Wow. Yeah, so one of these tombs at Tepe Gara had 500 lapis beads. Must have been very uh, distinguished. Yep. So at late Uruk Susa, this is about 3300 to 3100 BCE, we see a gold dog pendant. So unlike some of the other art depicting Salukis, this dog is shorter and stockier. It has pointy ears and its tail curls upwards. You're going to post this one on Instagram? Yeah. But okay. What is, your, what is your audio take on this dog? It's, I mean, it's the original doge. It is kind of corgi-like. It's Kabuso the Shiba Inu. Yes. Like, that's literally it. <laughs> what a cute little guy! Right, moving on to lead. Lead, as we've said, is a silver byproduct. The silver shows up in lead ores, they smelt out the lead, and you end up with a bunch of lead, which is useful. It's very dense. Wasn't it used as, like, eyeliner mm. by the Egyptians? By the Egyptians, maybe. I, I think I, I remember reading that they use like, galena to, like, line their eyes. Sickening. Yep. Literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, they use silver lead alloys for containers. At Habuba Kabira, which is in the Telkanas metro area that we've been talking about, you know, on the Euphrates, one of the Uruk outposts in Syria, 
So this site was occupied less than 150 years, probably starting around 3200 BC. So at Habuba Kabira, we found lumps of lead, probably slag, from small silver cupellation hearts. So people are making small amounts of silver at their homes for silver needs. As one does. Some of the lead items found at Habuba Kabira include, to quote a 1998 article by Pernicka and Associates, quote, a lump cast around the end of a bundle of copper or bronze pins, a coiled wire, possibly the decoration of an earring, two rod fragments, a fragmentary pierced pendant, a cramp from a repaired vessel, a nozzle-shaped object, a little tile with a tack, a small square sheet, and melted lumps with impressions of wooden sticks. So it's all kinds of stuff. Yeah, and it looks like a lot of the, a lot of what they're doing is they have bundles of other commodities and they're using lead as the caps just to keep them all bundled together. Very, lead all over everything. Very uh, productive. Uh, that is true. So lead is just like kind of waste product turned useful. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, okay. used for the, the cheapest kind of metal essentially. Neat. Yeah. For all your lead based needs. So moving on to iron, which will be the age after the Bronze Age. So iron was found at Jebel Aruda which is, again, part of the Kanas complex. Most iron during the late Uruk, and indeed most of the Bronze Age, is probably meteoric. Mm. So, yep, they happen to find mostly pure iron that comes in from space. It's the heaviest thing you can make in a star. Really? Yep. Did not know that. Mm-hmm. Cool. And as we've talked about, it might also be the byproduct from other small processes, because iron does show up in it. So at Unu, the archaic tablets mention iron. So during the Uruk III period, otherwise known as the Jemdet Nasser period, so this is the First period right after the end of the Uruk period, around 3100 to 2900 BC. Okay. They show up in proto-cuneiform tablets. So we have evidence that they were working with iron and considering it as a commodity worth trading. Okay. At the very beginning of the Bronze Age, even though it won't become common until a couple hundred years after the Bronze Age. Well, because it's got a much higher melting point. Yep. Yeah, 1500 degrees Celsius instead of 1100. That's hot. That is extremely hot. <laughs> so yeah, there is a lot of iron in the ground, but you need more complicated machinery to turned it into tools on a big scale. That explains the entire existence of the Bronze Age. Right. So I guess the way the way that I learned it in mm-hmm. seventh grade or <laughs> sixth grade yep. was that there was the Stone Age, mm-hmm. and then there was the Bronze Age, mm-hmm. and then there was the Iron Age, mm-hmm. and then we have seventh grade history. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> is that a reasonable way to think of, you know, air quotes, prehistory? Well, that's a good question. So, I mean, in the sense that there was a period when people made most tools out of stone, and then a period where people made most tools out of bronze, or at least a large number of tools out of bronze, mm-hmm. and then, then iron. That is true, or in the sense that you could say there's a period of time when stone was the cutting edge, I guess, <laughs> of, of technology, and then it was bronze, and then it was iron. Okay. 19th century academics wanted to divide everything into three parts. So they see all of history before Greece, basically. And say, okay, well, let's divide this into three parts. This is this process got started before they deciphered cuneiform. So at this point, they don't really know what's going on before Greece. When is Greece? So 500 BC-ish. You know, the first written stuff from this. That's... I, I believe John Travolta was about that. Okay. Sorry. Okay. That, that did take me a second. <laughs> Basically, these these you know European archaeologists are trying to come up with a way to think about archaeology that they haven't they don't have any text for yet. They'll also divide the Stone Age into Paleolithic, Mesolithic, Neolithic, mm-hmm. and then the Bronze Age into early, middle, late Bronze Age. So the thing about the Iron Age is that there's no archaeological distinction between, you know, the Assyrians and the Greeks in the same way that there is between Bronze Age cultures and Iron Age cultures. In archaeological terms, the Iron Age lasts from 1200 BC until whenever they start figuring out how to do the decimal process to steal or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you could say the Iron Age lasts 3,000 years. 
basically the, the, yeah, the term okay. the Iron Age is the term for everything after the Bronze Age and before we start caring about history. The Greeks and the Romans and the Right. <laughs> so it is outdated, especially no, that the, ma- that makes the idea a of the lot Iron sense. Age is outdated. Yeah. But there was a, you know, around 10,000 BC, people did start making a whole lot more to- iron tools. Right. So the Bronze Age happens to be, like the, the development of bronze working happens to coincide more or less with the development of cities and writing and all that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. And it happens, there, there happens to be a major political collapse right before people start making iron. So Bronze Age is kind of coherent as a historical term both in the archaeological and in the historical sense. Mm-hmm. Iron Age is only only makes sense as the beginning part of the archaeological period in which people made a bunch of iron tools. But and not really... This, you know, no, there's not really... This is the end of the Iron Age. Right. It ends It ends basically when the Persians defeat the Babylonians. And that's when Greece starts doing Greek stuff. So, you know, 19th century European historians are like, all right, well, that's the beginning of history. <laughs> wow. Thanks. That is very... Uh... Clarifying? Jeez, these old white guys yep. mucking it all up. But yeah, you know, if it had been taught as like people were using stone and mm-hmm. then stone was mostly phased out in favor of copper and then copper, or sorry, bronze, mm-hmm. and then bronze was mostly phased out for iron. And mm-hmm. then, well, I guess there's also like more written stuff mm-hmm. after that. I mean, yeah, we don't really have our first complete sentence basically until the mid 2000s. Before that, it's pictographs and numbers, and we can. We read them in some cases, but we they're not telling us about their world. They're telling us about commodities mm-hmm. and labor and so on, well, which is their world. It does tell us about their world. It doesn't tell us about political events. It tells us about Fair. the basic economic structure okay. of a, a particular institution. So it is true that after the Iron Age is seventh grade history. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Everything between, you know, the Uruk period and the, uh, you know, the collapse of the Neo-Babylonian Empire in the 500s is like, well, that's, that's ancient Near East. That's, that's chapter one. Then chapter two is the Greeks. <laughs> uh, well, origin story for this podcast, I guess. <laughs> no, exactly. Speaking of bronze. So, uh, bronze is a copper alloy. can be made with tin or arsenic. Brass is a copper zinc alloy. In this case, the metals are fused when they're molten, which changes the properties of the metals. So by the Uruk period, we have intentional alloys that are common in the highlands. So lots of copper is over 2% arsenic, which is higher than it would be. So if it's over 2%, that's proof that they're doing it on purpose. So arsenic is present in natural copper sulfides, but the roasting process removes most of the arsenic. So it's considered as one of the impurities to take out of the copper. Right. So to get alloys with over 2% arsenic, you need arsenic sulfides or arsenical copper sulfides. So orpiment, which is a pretty orange crystal, and rialgar, which is a very pretty red gem, Mm. are arsenic sulfides. And they're associated with oxidized copper and deeper down, you have copper sulfides. Okay, so you get these pretty crystals mm-hmm. from, yeah, like arsenic sulfides. Yeah. All right. Yeah, so they are very cool. And then you... Uh, them yeah, and then that is what's used to make 2% arsenic copper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 2%. So arsenic does not have a big effect on cast or annealed metal, but if you put even a small amount in hammered metal, it makes the metal much harder. Right. So, do you know off the top of your head if the actual physical process of hammering it would change the makeup the, of the alloy? I mean, evidently it does. <laughs> well, okay, okay. <laughs> Do you know how? Well, kind of like I said, like the actual like electronic environment around a metal is like very homogeneous. Mm-hmm. Like you squish them close together enough, they freaking make a bond. Nice. <laughs> like that's just what happens. I guess, yeah, most alloys are made 
kind of like you said, like they're fused when they're molten, right? Mm-hmm. You can like mix them up to like make this uniform structure. Yeah, I mean, you can also do it mechanochemically. Nice. Yeah, so, you know, if they're using these tools as cutting blades, which they generally are, you know, they would notice a much harder blade immediately and probably start doing that a lot more. So over the course of the early Bronze Age, so it's the 2000s BC, most copper axes and chisels are in the 1% to 4% arsenic range. So on the Vickers hardness scale, they go up to about 100. Is each V just hardness Vicker? I don't know. Sure. Hardness units? 100 hard? And three to five percent arsenic is uh, one hundred and fifty hard. Yeah, it's just hard. Yeah, so you can make it fifty percent harder by adding you know, two or three percent more arsenic. So if the liquid metal is exposed to air, so you know if it's molten and you have it hanging out in the air where all the oxygen is, the arsenic reacts with the air and produces arsenic oxide. So this either sublimes from the surface of the metal as a toxic white fume, or it remains in the alloy. So you know the oxygen reacts with the arsenic, but it stays in the in the tool and makes the metal burn. So this is a problem with smaller objects, especially because of the surface of volume ratio. Mm-hmm. So in Bronze Age Europe, the rivets on halberds are softer and have less arsenic than the halberd blades themselves, because the rivets, are, you know, have a more oh, surface area. Smaller, right? So they get more brittle. So that's oh. cool. Told that to Kelton, who was like, "I didn't know they had halberds in Bronze Age Europe." Yeah, neat. Yeah. Uh, so it seems like that would be a problem for really all arsenical like castings. Yes. yes. Like, like yeah. to some extent. <laughs> yes, if it's if it's dangerous when the metal gets hot and you're a smith, <laughs> that's going to be an issue. Yeah, so speaking of health effects. Oh boy. <laughs> so uh start with mining. So long-term exposure to dust in a enclosed space, like a tunnel, can be the anthroposis, respiratory condition. That stuff settling in your lungs. Yep. Also, you have um the risk of toxic gases, both from asphyxiation or from unleashing some source of toxic gas inside the air. Right. Um, Displacing all your oxygen. Yep. Oh, yeah, and if there's a fire inside the tunnel, then it consumes all the oxygen, and then you suffocate. Or you can get injured in a collapse or something like that, fall down a shaft. It's a hard hard job. Yeah. Still a hard job. So copper is necessary for the human body. It helps with uh, producing melanin and connective tissue, but your body can't produce copper on its own, so you need to take it from your diet. And because your body uses it, it's good at getting rid of it. So where where are people getting copper from their diets? That's a good question. I should have looked into that. I... Or I guess I was wondering about like you know the Bronze Age, but mm-hmm. then also in general. I mean, copper is a big part of like metalloproteins and mm-hmm. all that stuff. Um, seafood, nuts, veggies, fruits, and other foods. Oh, nice. They do have at least some of those. Copper in living systems. Copper metalloproteins. Copper, copper everywhere. So if your body does absorb too much copper, it can cause diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, and uh, coma, lung and liver cancer, and eventually death. Was this like a problem in the Bronze Age, though? Not for not unless you were a smith and constantly like inhaling it and touching it. Mm, remember, right. On the other hand, lead and arsenic are famously toxic. Neither are necessary for the body, so the body's not used to excreting them, so it's very slow at getting them out of the body. Mm-hmm. So lead fumes are produced during smelting. Mm-hmm. So there's no minimum exposure for toxic effects. General symptoms of lead exposure include brain damage, anemia, convulsions, nerve paralysis, osteoporosis, and eventually death. Wait. Yep. 0.1 parts per million lead content in blood can lead to permanent intellectual and hearing defects. The brain will retain lead for weeks. The bones will retain it for years. Aren't you glad we stopped putting that stuff in gasoline? Uh, yeah, I am really glad we stopped. Yeah, so they yeah. added tetraethyl lead to gasoline to mm. stop engines from knocking, doing unwanted explosions. Mm. Yeah, awesome. I guess they uh, figured out how to not do that. Yep. So we're not freaking inhaling lead in all the time. Don't worry, people won't be poisoned where there are cars. Well, in cars, yeah, there's no more lead in gas. 
that's good. But like, you know, jet fuel's got it. Really? Like, yeah, just lead and all kinds of stuff. I didn't know that. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yep. Makes your engine work better. <laughs> so, moving on to arson. Woo! So, I mentioned that copper smelting produces arson gas. So, an acute dose can cause brainstone failure, which causes death. Acute uh, meaning a large, yeah, fast yes. dose. Yeah, like if you, if you take a big huff of arson gas. Yeah. At lower doses, it can cause liver and kidney damage, skin inflammation, which leads to skin cancer, peripheral nerve damage, which leads to weakness in the legs and feet. And you'll notice that many of the Smith gods in ancient pantheons, so Hephaestus, Vulcan, Wayland, and Germanic pantheon, are all disabled, which could be right. a memory of the effect that you know, constant working with poisonous metals has in their body. Is there like evidence of, I, mean, I assume pregnant women were probably not super right. exposed to a lot of these things, but like mm-hmm. lead has like an effect on like sperm. Hmm. Like, do you know of any like evidence of like birth defects or like chemical poisoning? That shows up like in the archaeological record. I mean, it would be tricky to find That's unless true. you're affected with a skeleton. That's true. So yeah, we don't have access to soft tissues. Of course, yeah. Uh, so yeah, unless it affects the skeleton or the DNA. Yeah. So okay. So lead will do that. Oh wow! What? what? <laughs> <laughs> I think it corrupts like sperm DNA. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Lead is really not good for you. <laughs> I'm not, I'm also not a biologist. So. Oh yeah, no, no, no. Well, okay, that's yeah. a, that's an interesting connection about you know depictions of Smith gods. Yeah, all right. So copper and silver. I'll continue the argument. For your harvest or winter, you do not supply the copper adzes and chisels which build houses. Not even a female lamb, so no one concerns themselves with you. Silver, you are forgotten in the soil inside the house. A scared mouse in a silent house. Silver, the palace is not your station. An obscure place, a grave, such is your station. Silver, banquets are not your assigned task. Fasting is your assigned task. Silver, to make lead shine is not an important achievement. The task of making divine statues is not likely to fall within your capabilities. Why do you keep attacking me like a dog? You snake, get back in the darkest part of the house and lie down in your grave. Rude! (laughs) So, Silver answers that some tools are made of wood. Hmm. Well, that doesn't have anything to do with silver. Well, you do not give blades to the wooden hoe that breaks the ground. The wooden tool mixes the clay. Wedges are not written by you. The wooden shovels pile up to sheaves. Match your measuring devices to the measuring stick. The coppersmith wrestles with stones and with beads. They are too hard, and he has to stop because of you. Work away with your tines at the dirt by the oven instead. Silver is really grasping. Yeah. You could only say it's shiny once. That's true. (laughs) Well, you know what? Copper failed to consider... Now we, we fancily eat with silver. Mm, there Where copper would still come out on top in the modern <laughs> age, I think. Also not stainless steel, so iron wins. Yeah, so again, the text is fragmentary and most of it is lost. So we do know who wins. Silver and strong copper, having carefully had a debate. Strong copper had the lead over silver in Enlil's house. Father Enlil be praised. Then the days passed, the year grew long, the silos filled up, and flax was beaten. So late spring and early summer would have been harvest time. The text praises Ur-Nama, who founded the Third Dynasty at Ur, around 2100 BCE. This was the dynasty to which Shulgi belonged, Shulgi from previous dialogues. Enlil joyfully addressed Sumer in order to build the great houses of the great gods. To raise the banks of the levees and ditches, Enlil gave strength to the shepherd Ur-Nama and his majestic armies. On Ur-Nama, receiving kingship, strong copper helped him mightily. With it, the shepherd Ur-Nama restored the great temple of Suan in Ur. With it, he restored the Akor, the house of Enlil, in Nippur. He made famous the houses of the great gods, and raised high the banks, the levees, and ditches. Under him, 
The people eat excellent. Copper thrashed them.